Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. My name is Ryan Miner with a minordetail.com, and you're listening to a minor detail on Blog Talk Radio. That's Blog Talk Radio slash a minor detail. I have the distinct pleasure today to have with me Dr. Mark Plaster. He is a Republican congressional candidate in Maryland's third congressional district which incidentally is the most gerrymandered congressional district, I believe, in the state of Maryland. Dr. Plaster, welcome to A Minor Detail, and thanks for spending the afternoon with us. Thanks, Ryan. And I had to chuckle when you said that because I I say that all the time. We are, number one, we are the most gerrymandered district in the country. So I suppose that's something we can either be proud of or uh, be embarrassed by. Well, I think think we're working on it, and uh, we have – Governor Hogan and assembling a bipartisan commission to fix this problem because I, I think Democrats and Republicans are are looking at how congressional districts are are created and we know where I live up in the sixth district and I don't even want to say up end because I live on the tail end of it in Montgomery County. Uh, you know, it's like what does Montgomery County down in Potomac, like way down in Potomac? have to do with the rest of the 6th District, which is really revolves around the Hagerstown, Frederick area, Allegheny County, up in Garrett County. And I just see how Democrats in Maryland have strategically gerrymandered Republicans out of these districts, knowing full well exactly what they were hoping to accomplish. And Dr. Plaster, where does your district extend to? What is the boundaries of the uh, the 3rd? Oh, I could talk all day about the, the extent <laughs> of the boundaries. It starts uh, all the way down in uh, Anne Arundel County at the South River and swings up uh, across uh, the uh, Gibson Island area through Pasadena, swings around, uh, it goes across over into uh, Howard County, um, Arbutus goes out, to, swings out to uh, parts of, uh, and we have 13 precincts in Montgomery County, uh, Olney, uh, uh, Sandy Spring, it goes up to Towson, uh, goes into the Inner Harbor, wraps around Fed Hill, Butchers Hill, Canton, uh, a long, thin uh, string that goes up and then and, and blossoms out to uh, Parkville, another piece that goes up and uh, gets Towson and then swings uh, and then extends all the way far north of 695. So it, it goes all the way from Anne Arundel County to north of 695. Wow. Uh, how did yeah, they come up well, with this? Right. Uh, well, you know, obviously, I think the the political reason is to take uh, Republicans and spread them out uh, where they can be just, uh, you know, uh, enough outnumbered that it makes it very, very difficult uh, to uh, to hear a Republican voice. Uh, the other, of course, is to make it difficult to campaign. I just spent the day on the road, you know, uh, way up in Pike, uh, Parksville, uh, Pikeville, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, and um and it's an hour and a half to drive up and back, you know, with traffic. Yeah. And uh, uh, you could be uh, well known in Anne Arundel County, and, and uh, northern uh, Baltimore County won't know who you are. Uh, it's 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 like running a statewide race. Yeah, and, I bet. And, uh, that's on purpose. That's on purpose. How? That makes it very very expensive and very difficult. We have two media markets, Baltimore and Washington. So yeah, that's it, that's tough. It definitely favors an incumbent. Well. And that's what we're hoping to to change um, come uh, in the fall. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. why uh, you're here today on a minor detail to talk about your race. So uh, let's let's go into it. You your okay. your background is just remarkable. And um, I always like you know when people ask me who's Mark Plaster, well I say, well he's many things. He's not just one. You know, he's he's a he's a father, a husband, but he's also an attorney, a physician, a veteran, and a business owner, and uh, that's well articulated on the uh, the meet Mark section of your website, which is plasterforcongress.com. So you 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 have a really remarkable life, and you spent a lot of time uh, in the emergency room. So I kind of want you to just walk me through uh, your experience and. Let's talk about who you are as a person, where you're born and raised, and uh, okay. a little. I want to talk about your family, and a little bit about um, you know what what made you decide you wanted to run for the United States Congress and to jump into politics. So um, sure. you know why don't you why don't you start out with um, 
your story, your narrative, and, and who you are and uh, what you're up to. Okay. Well, you know, it depends on how far back you want to go, but uh, they kind of know who I am. I, I was, uh, you know, I was born in the Midwest. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a preacher's kid. And so I went to church <laughs> uh, three times a week for 20 years growing up and uh, uh, and had a, a real uh, uh, heart for service. That was part of the upgrow, uh, upbringing that I, that I had. My father always thought if you loved somebody or something, you served them. And, um, and I uh, became interested in medicine while I was volunteering at a children's uh, neurological center for kids with CP and, and that sort of thing. I went into right. emergency medicine out of uh, out of medical school, and and uh, coming out of res- I met my wife there uh, in uh, college, and and married my sweetheart, and and um, started our family during residency. And when I came out of residency in emergency medicine, I uh, one of the shocks actually, uh, being somewhat naive about about medicine, was how political it had become. You know, the idea of uh, just being able to practice medicine, you know, was just uh, not what it used to be, at least what I, not what I thought it was going to be. And, and uh, uh, we were intensely impacted by government bureaucracy and, and uh, liability that was created by uh, some of the changes in the laws and that sort of thing. And, and so as a result of that, I ended up uh, deciding to, to go to law school. Uh, my wife was not terribly happy about that idea after spending as many years as we had in, in medical school and residency training. But uh, I was the director of a relatively high-volume emergency department in, in uh, Wilmington, Delaware, for the four years that I went to law school at night. And, um, and then after that, I, interestingly, you know, opportunities seemed to come to you. I continued to practice emergency medicine, but I was approached by the Bureau of National Affairs in Washington, and asked to become the editor of a medical legal journal. There weren't, there weren't very many uh, uh, MDJDs around, uh, you know, 20 years ago, and um, so they asked me to uh, to comment on a lot of the litigation that was impacting the, the field of medicine. So I had I acquired somewhat of a national voice writing about healthcare policy and the interaction between medicine and law and medicine and, you know, governmental uh, legislation, that type of thing. And during that time period, uh, a lot of people started to say, well, you know, why don't, why don't you run for political office? And, and my, uh, my response always was the same. I live in Maryland, you know, and Maryland uh, conservatives don't really have much of a chance. Right. Yeah. I don't really want to, don't really want to do that. But uh, then in 2001, uh, I, I fulfilled a, a lifelong dream and, and uh, joined the Navy Reserves. My son was at the U.S. Naval Academy at the time, and uh, my father had been in World War II. Uh, uh, he was a flyer in the South Pacific. My grandfather had been in World War One. He, in fact, was the only survivor of a direct artillery hit on a, on a trench and spent his entire adult life as a disabled veteran. And uh, so it was in our blood. My son was at the Naval Academy, and I, I uh, joined the Navy Reserves, and shortly after that, the, the towers fell, 9-11 occurred, and shortly after that, the Navy became even more interested in my emergency medicine skills and transferred me over to the Marine Corps, and uh, eventually, uh, my son and I both were deployed at the same time. Uh, he was with the Lincoln Battle Group aboard a, a guided missile frigate, and I was with uh, the ground troops with the 1st Marine Division as the uh, officer in charge of a shock trauma platoon, so we're one of the few fathers and sons who fought simultaneously in the same war. And, uh, wow! I'm very proud. Of, I'm very proud of that. We both we both uh, returned changed men. He became a father, and I became a grandfather while we were deployed. <laughs> and um, so, it, uh, it it gave me a chance, really, uh, not just the experience, but it cha- gave me a chance to to see American policy, you know, uh, as it was played out on the ground. To work with young Marines and sailors. Uh, of all nation, of all ethnic groups and uh, races, religions. Uh, you really, if you're in the military, it's one of the things I really wish that more legislators had an opportunity to be uh, in the military because you see the full spectrum of what makes America. And uh, I got a chance to live with these men and women uh, in the desert and pretty austere, austere circumstances, and really come to love them and, and uh, you know appreciate what they stood for and what they fought for, what they suffered for. 
So uh, I came home a, a much stronger American, a much stronger feel for what America stands for when I returned. And um very proud of that. Went back in 08 for another for another uh, tour in Western Anbar, uh, a, t- a town that is uh, now con- completely controlled by ISIS. So uh, my experience there was a very personal experience of seeing what our uh, our conflict in Iraq was about with the people. I got to know all the doctors, the Iraqi doctors and city council and such. I could talk a long time about that experience, but but uh, it's been an interesting uh, preparation for this run. People say, you know, did you just kind of wake up one day and decide to run for political office? And uh, and I actually have to say that's probably been 30 years in the making uh, of real life experience of, of caring for people, listening to problems, um, you know, working with teams of, of, of people to fix problems. Um, and um, so now standing up to say, you know, I will, you know, uh, offer myself uh, in service to the to the state country you know is is very natural it feels it feels very much uh, the place i should be well it's like you i rem- i kind of think of back to my guidance counselor in you know like middle school like 6th or 7th or 8th grade and you walk into their office and then you take a test and sometimes this test is a good determinant of what job you want to be. So you must have passed that test, and uh, like with flying colors, because you're uh, like every <laughs> you're like every parent's dream child. You know, oh, well, you know, sweetheart, do you want to go with a doctor or a lawyer? Well, how about if I just go with like all four? You know, a business over a veteran, a physician, and a lawyer. So it, it's well, it's just remarkable. It, it tells you though that you should really think twice about uh, children who have who are overly active. Uh, you never know where they will take that energy and and expend it. I, I was probably uh, my uh, grade school teacher's worst nightmare uh, from that standpoint. I I wanted to do everything. I wanted to learn everything, uh, and um, it's uh, my career has has reflected that, and I'm 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 very proud to have been able to serve in all the varieties that I have. I, I still. Until this year, I, I practiced medicine full time until this year. And so, um, tell me about your business. Uh, what what type of business do you own, and are you still involved with that? Mm-hmm. Um, I actually didn't say much about that. When, when I came out of uh, law school, I was approached the Bureau of National Affairs, as I said, and started writing for the uh, an emergency law uh, magazine. But I recognized. Uh, that there was a need uh, for an emergency medicine magazine. It was a new field. You see, my when I graduated medical school in 79, uh, that was the first year that emergency medicine was recognized as a specialty. So there weren't really any professional magazines that were aimed at emergency physicians. And, uh, and so I proposed this uh, project to the Bureau of National Affairs, and they didn't want to do it, didn't fit with their what they like to do, and so uh, I just launched it myself. Uh, I started writing this magazine and typing it out on a, on a uh, dot matrix printer. I don't think too many young people even know what a dot matrix, dot matrix printer is, and um, my kids helped me fold and mail uh, the first issue to about uh, 1,200 doctors uh, all along the Mid-Atlantic. And um, over the years, uh, we, we worked at it for 10 years without taking a profit, and um, I, all that time, I subsidized it with my my own work through emergency medicine, and um, uh, now it uh, now we have a publishing company that has uh, three magazines. One one of them, the, the the main one that we started 20 years ago, is now goes to 35,000 physicians in in the country. We have an international magazine that goes to 15 countries, and we just recently launched uh, kind of a cutting edge magazine uh, on telemedicine and looking at leveraging di- uh, digital uh, innovation and how it's going to change the way we practice, lower our costs, that sort of thing. And um, so we went from, we we are the, the true um, entrepreneurial spirit. I mean, I know exactly what uh, people feel like when they launch their businesses and they struggle and borrow and, and scrape to make it happen. And uh, at one point uh, in our business growth. I had uh, borrowed every dime of equity against the house. I maxed my credit cards uh, in order to pay the the, uh, the staff, and we weren't taking a dime and, and, uh, and pay, and, and we were just hoping that uh, the you know, people that owed us money would pay, and 
Right. And uh, we eventually eventually made it work, and and it's been very successful. It's it's uh, added uh, a real uh, a useful product uh, to the marketplace of, of emergency medicine. And and I, so I know I know what new what entrepreneurs and new business startups go through, and and it just it uh, breaks my heart to see so many of them fail uh, because of bureaucratic uh, uh, regulatory overload that uh, drives their cost up and makes it impossible. So that's part of part of the, the reason why I wanted to get involved in, in the politics, not just medicine, but uh, I saw that that small business, which was the big driver of uh, new jobs and, and uh, innovation and, and uh, uh, opportunity for people uh, to take take the next step up, all, all that's being strangled by uh, uh, excessive uh, regulation, and uh, and so I thought we really have to do something about that. Well, we we certainly do, and <clears throat> looking at this race and the the candidate pool, I think of no one else who is possibly more qualified to be in the United States congressman and to use his experience to add value into a Congress. So, and we know that Congress right now has a, a low bar and people are upset. There's a, there's a national feeling of frustration, of yeah. anger that Washington is not listening to common yeah. people that they're, that, that, that people who want to go to Washington, they, they say, they make many, many promises. They say, well, we're going to go and fix the debt. We're going to go and fix our education system, and we're going to go protect your liberties. And sometimes, <laughs> and oftentimes, that doesn't happen. And uh, this this election cycle has been one for the record books because it's sort of been upended um, in so many ways. And it's such an unconventional election political season. I've never seen – I mean, I've – I've been a student of politics for the last 10 or 12 years, and even in my short life, um, I have never seen anything like this. And you think you can predict something that's going to happen, but then this election cycle certainly throws you for a loop. Um, And and I think outsiders like yourself, you've never been a politician. This is your first – correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Plaster. This is your first time running for public office. Is that correct? I've held some positions as school boards. Uh, I, was, I was on two different school boards. I was a volunteer for the, the Delaware State Fire Commission when we lived uh, in, in that area, but absolutely correct. I mean, I've been involved from an advisory capacity in in, uh, in, in various uh, governmental things, so it's not I'm not completely a novice when it comes to dealing with the bureaucracies, uh, but the, you're absolutely correct. I've never stood for election. And that's that's the new part uh, that we have to deal with. I'd like to address uh, something you said though that uh, I think is very important. Yeah, please. You said that people people get elected and they go to go to Washington and and uh, and then they seem to you know, forget. They make promises that they don't deliver on. There's a, there's two things that I think people need to keep in mind. Sometimes you make a promise that you would like to see happen, and uh, you, you you confront the the reality of uh, of people who disagree with you you get to you, you tell your folks uh in your your district or city or whatever that you're going to do something you get there and you just simply don't have the political clout it's one uh one vote and and it's not going to make the difference and so that's maybe a reality that that all americans need to understand about about the compromises that uh that occur i wouldn't say compromises but we just don't always get everything that you want but the thing that people are most concerned with are the people who go to Washington for a career and who compromise their uh, their purpose, they compromise their their vote for their own personal uh, careers. They want to step up to the next level. They want to make sure that their seat is protected. They want a better office. They want the the accolades of their party, and uh, that we are very very uh, discouraged, even disgusted with. And um, I think that one of the advantages I have coming to uh, this role late in life is that I've had successful careers. I really don't want another career. Um, I have the one purpose, and that is to go and address problems uh, and to represent the best I can, you know, the, the folks back home. 
And there's a certain freedom in that. You know, there is a tremendous freedom in that. You know, one of the things that's, uh, for whether you like Don Trump or you hate Don Trump, uh, one of the attractive features that he promotes, whether it's true or not is another issue, but nevertheless he promotes is that he's not beholden to anybody. And we all right. want our, our representative uh, uh, legislators to be holden to only the people they represent and and not pursuing their own agendas of, of career or popularity or position or any of those things. And and I, I, I'm kind of free to do that, and I'm, I'm uh, excited to, to do that. I, I don't care. Uh, I don't have to make friends. I don't have to get a great office. I don't have to have retirement. Uh, I just I want to go and, um, and 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 serve. I know it sounds corny. I, it's honest. I know it sounds terribly corny, but that's exactly what I want to do. Well, that's no, that's commendable. I mean, I and I hear it in your voice, and I've met you and before, and we have talked one on one, and I know that you have a yearning to to serve your the constituents of the third congressional district, and not just that, but to make a lasting change in Congress and go and and find solutions to some of America's biggest problems. And no matter who becomes president um, in the fall, um, I think that what people are looking for is Congress to not only hold accountable, um, <laughs> the American people want to hold Congress accountable, but they want to find real solutions. And instead of right. partisan bickering and, and fronting and all of the stuff that really makes us dislike the political climate, we're looking for leaders to go to Washington and say, okay, I have some disagreements with my colleagues on the other side, but let's find let's find some common ground, intersect, right. and uh, and come up with some real impractical solutions instead of – I mean it feels like we are just – every single day, Congress is at war with some, somebody else, and mm-hmm. uh, it, it's – it's disheartening. It makes people not want to get involved in the process, but you did. You decided yeah. this is the right thing for you to do for your career, and uh, for not only that, but you, you know, just like you said, you want to give back. So let me ask you this, Dr. Plaster. We're, what part of the 3rd dist- Congressional District, what region do you live in? I live in Anne Arundel County. Uh, I okay. live in Annapolis, yeah, uh, right uh, off of uh, the Canada Wall. So okay. uh, that that's my home, and uh, uh, you know, when you talk about gerrymandering, one of the problems with gerrymandering is that it puts people who really don't even know each other or have similar um, uh, problems or even goals thrown into the same um, uh, group, uh, and it inevitably parts of the of that district will find themselves not being represented because they may hold views that are very, very different from other parts of the district. And that's what's happened here. Um, you know, Anne Arundel County, for the, uh, for the most part, are very, very similar folks, and yet we are split into four different congressional districts. Not a single congressman lives in Anne Arundel County. And so instead of putting the kind of birds of a feather together, and allowing them to be represented and have their voice heard in, in Congress, we're spread out. We've got people from all over, and, and people we don't know, and people we don't uh, uh, have similar uh, um, economic interests. Uh, you know, uh, people in Anne Arundel County don't have the same perspective of people who live in the Inner Harbor who want to revitalize the Port of Baltimore, who don't have the same uh, interest as the people who are on the rim of the, uh, the, the Beltway in, in uh, Montgomery County. Uh, and so it's very difficult, very difficult to to see how um, a legislator would say these people should be represented by the same voice. Just right. it makes no sense. It was clearly for a political purpose and not for the purpose uh, that uh, congressional districts were intended to be to be drawn. So <clears throat> let's let's talk a little bit about the politics of your own race. When did you decide that you were going to? Jump into the race and, and become a candidate. Well, you know, like I said, I've been I, people have been after me for fifteen years uh, since <laughs> I started writing a lot about healthcare policy. About you know, in fact, I I was constantly encouraging my colleagues, my position colleagues, to be involved in the political process, and they were always you know firing back to me. You know, you, you know, why don't you get involved yourself, take your own medicine? Because you know, we we have we have good careers. People like us. 
we get things done. You know, we save lives. And why would you want to stop doing that to go to Washington where you're reviled and and uh, and nothing ha- nothing seems to happen and it costs you you know costs you your sanity to go. So why would you want to do that? But I was constantly telling people we need to get involved in the process because you know the nation needs people with practical experience. So um, uh, and I was always able to send off people who said you know you need to go you need to do this until Larry Hogan won. And when Larry Hogan, when Governor, I'm sorry, let me be so. Uh, <laughs> uh, when Governor Hogan won, um, the same voices came back to me, and they said, "You know, if there's ever a time when a reasonable, practical person with real life experience can run and win, it is now. Things uh, in, in politics, timing is everything." And uh, we looked at the county, the uh, district that, uh, that that I live in, and the third district. And uh, we noted that uh, Governor Hogan actually won the third district by 24,000 votes. Oh wow! Uh, with a, with a very straightforward, uh, you know, uh, message, uh, an economic message. And uh, I said, you know, that's what people need. That's that's what I do as an emergency physician. You know, we talk all the time about triage, about picking the the, the problems that have the have the highest priority. That's what I've done for 30 years. And and so if you look at at the agendas that we need to – if you look at the problems, okay, we've got a lot of problems. You know that. Right. But when you look at the problems, what are the number one, two, and three problems that, that everybody in this district all agree with? And those are the things that Larry Hogan you know, identified for the most part and ran on that. People identified with him and elected, elected him going away. And I said, you know – Governor Hogan's right. We need to take this kind of message to the to the federal government. Keep our highest priorities on rebuilding our our economic base. And I know Republicans say that all the time, but it's a real thing. You know, you rebuild that middle class by giving people opportunities to start their own businesses, to move up, to keep more of their their money, not not be taxed into into oblivion. And then you start to build things that they can pass to their children. The American dream becomes alive again. Those are the things that we want to do, uh, and you know that that I'm going to set my priorities with. That's the triage. That's number one, and number two is to make sure that we're safe. Um, one of the things I learned uh, uh, when I was overseas in Iraq, uh, in my experience with the Marine Corps, is that there are folks in this world who don't like us, and who want to destroy us, and they only understand force. And you know. I'm a, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, but I do not believe that America as a government should turn the other cheek. We are in, our, our role as government is justice and, and to provide safety for our inhabitants and uh, for, for the, our fellow countrymen. And so that's, that, those are the priorities, and those are things that I have experience in. And uh, so it seems very natural. Uh, when uh, when Governor Hogan won, and and people came back to me and said, you know, Mark, now is the time. And I talked to my wife, and you know, we said, there's there are things about providence, you know, that uh, maybe this is the time that we have been called to step up. And we prayed about it, and uh, I'm not gonna not gonna lie, I'm a devout believer, and. Um, we prayed about it, and at the end of the day, we said, "No, I think this is what we're called to do." And, uh, wow. So here we are. It's a great story. <laughs> so, what what how, what are you learning on on the campaign trail? What what what's the biggest lesson? Well, uh, the biggest lesson I think is um, people are discouraged, um, and as a result that. They're discouraged and they're and they're scared. Um, uh, they think that this bureaucracy has gotten so big uh, and so politically correct, and uh, and they're just one voice, you know, uh, that they don't think that anybody can change, um, anybody can overcome. You know, um, uh, the Sarbanes Sarbanes family has been in power for fifty years. Yeah, and and everybody says you you know when I when I stood up to to you know raise my hand, um, people say you're not going to beat him. <laughs> you know what are you thinking? You know he's an incumbent. He's got money. He's got name recognition. He's got all this stuff. 
and um, and uh, that, I, I think that there's that sense of you know you can't change this a, a cynicism. There's a real cynicism that, oh, sure. that per, pervades our country right now, and then it expresses itself in anger and um, uh, wanting to fix it all at one time. And the challenge that I've had is trying to let people know that, you know, when somebody comes in to me with a, a, a life-threatening problem, we start pick, we start at the highest priority and start working on that. And you start them moving in the right direction. And um, <laughs> there's, there was always a joke, uh, I wouldn't say a joke, but uh, it, uh, in my house that uh, I always told my kids and my wife that if somebody ever asked me, um, you know, am I, Doc, am I going to die? And I, I heard that countless times in the Surrey Emergency <laughs> Department. And, uh, and my expression was always, not on my shift. And, uh, and it, it sounds a little cynical, but in actual fact, what it means is we are going to survive this moment. We're going to work on this problem, the one that's directly in front of us. We don't have guarantees for tomorrow, but we're going to survive this shift. And then we're going to work on the next shift and the next shift and the next shift. And um, and I think that what we as, as Americans need to roll up our sleeves and say, there is no place to go, there is no place to run to, and there's no sense being cynical. If, if you're at the end of your rope, you tie a knot in it, and you hang on. And uh, I, I think that I I have to help give people you know, the hope of turning this thing around and starting it in the right direction. And that's one step at a time, one vote at a time, one you know, one problem at a time. And, uh, and that's, that's uh, this, uh, this anger and the frustration and, and uh, cynicism uh, is a pretty, pretty deep problem. And uh, that's, I'm not so sure I didn't know it was there, but to experience it day in and day out uh, on the so campaign trail. Before we jump in to some policy, I, I want to ask you, are people in your district, are they dissatisfied with Sar- with John Sarbanes, who has been in office? His father was been ha- has been in office. What are you hearing from people in 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 the third? What are they telling you? Uh, if you'd be surprised how how uh, cynicism uh, results from people not being involved, uh, they don't know anything. Half the district thinks they're still voting for his uh, his father. <laughs> um, you know, uh, we've we've encountered that a great deal. I mean, that, I think uh, John actually did a, a walk down the street one time and did a man on the street. And nobody knew who he was, <laughs> and uh, and so uh, yeah, they know the name, but they don't know anything that he's done or hasn't done. And, and so, in a lot of cases, um, people kind of they hate Congress, they hate the the ineffectiveness uh, uh, in of Congress. But oh, but my guy, I'll, I'll vote the same guy back in and I voted for the last umpteen times, not realizing that they've actually created the part of the problem. Um, so uh, what I hear uh, from people who know the pro- uh, know the situation, who are involved in the, the political process, some some critical things. I mean, for instance, I was just uh, at, uh, um, up in Pikesville today uh, talking to uh, um, leaders in the Jewish community, and, and they were exhibiting their uh, distrust uh, over the execution of the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, they felt like they had been betrayed, uh, that uh, uh, Mr. Sarbanes had, uh, um, uh, he was quick to go to a mosque, but he was very slow to come up to the temple and explain uh, why he voted for the, the, the Iran nuclear deal. And left uh, uh, Israel in a much more precarious situation. So there are people that are very, very dissatisfied uh, with uh, uh, their representation right now. Um, but uh, I, I think that again, what we have to overcome is this feeling of I can't change anything. So why why be involved? Well, it seems like that your your candidacy <clears throat> has not only drawn. Bipartisan has you know for, you don't have a primary opponent and uh, I I actually do I do oh you do I'm uh, sorry okay I I, I, did, uh, I was uh, not aware well I think that uh, I uh, got a primary opponent the last day of the uh, of filing period hmm. and uh, uh, Mr Harris uh, 
um, Thomas Harris. Okay. Um, but um, uh, and so we'll have that. We'll have our primary uh, you know, ballot, and we're going to run this race, uh, you know, straight up and, and really work hard. I believe that I'm uh, have more to offer than Mr. Harris, but uh, we'll let the voters uh, determine that. Uh, we plan to have a debate. Uh, oh, good. And I hope you'll be there. I hope and, so. Too. Uh, yep. So <clears throat> we there was a debate last night in the sixth congressional district up in Hagerstown, well Funkstown technically, but uh, they they have eight candidates and some of the issues that that came up last night were national security, the economy, um, and we talked. They talked in depth about basically getting America back on track, but I. But national security is definitely in the top three issues that you would want to work um, that that Congress has to consistently work with. And um, you know, just taking a look, a brief look at your website, um, you talk about your experience as being a deployed uh, Navy veteran to Iraq, um, and we uh, we have a problem in this country, and it's ISIS, and it's become more and more difficult to sort of pinpoint what we have to do to defeat ISIS. The president really, and to be all honest on this show, he doesn't have a plan, and I haven't seen a plan. And that's discouraging when the commander-in-chief is virtually unsure about how to defeat uh, the most radicalized enemy that we've had in uh, in centuries, then that, that bothers me. So, Dr. Plaster, looking at this entire foreign policy situation, not only with ISIS, but with Iran, with Saudi Arabia, with other countries in the Middle East. Um, let's, I want to talk about that. What is, can you offer some insight, if you would get to Congress, and how we can tackle ISIS and some of the other most pressing foreign policy conundrums? Sure, sure. You know, I, I want to relate it to... Um, what I what I've done as a physician because it's the same sort of problem solving skills that you know you've got a complicated issue that comes in and and where do you where do you start okay the first thing uh, that you always have to do is you have to commit yourself to listen uh, and to really identify the problem and not start with uh, with with a solution and and try to craft it uh, into into the problem, you know. I always tell people that uh, uh, I've, in the course of 30 years, I've walked into about 150 to 180,000 ERs, ER uh, exam rooms, and it said basically the same thing. Uh, Hi, I'm Dr. Plaster. How can I help you? Or what can I help you with? It varies. Most important thing you do at that point is to shut up. You sit down and you listen right. to the patient's problem. And you know, I think that right now we're not listening to the problem, and and we're not willing to address. Uh, we're not getting to the honesty of what the problem is when dealing with ISIS. We we have a president right now who doesn't recognize, won't recognize that we're dealing with Islamic uh, terrorists. Uh, we've called it workplace violence. We've called it all kinds of things that that people look at him and go, what? Um, no, let's let's deal with it. Let's be honest. We don't have to malign Muslims, um, you know, American Muslims, uh, people who uh, believe in Allah and pray five times a day. No, right. we, we, need to, we need to understand there's a difference between those folks and the other folks who walk into a, uh, a, a military training center and start screaming Allah Akbar and killing people. There's a difference, okay? And those are Islamic terrorists. And uh, we need to first identify what the problem is. We need to identify all the parties in the, in the Middle East, the ISIS, the Nusra Front, uh, the Peshmerga. We have to really see what their goals are and and see where, where we shake out. Who is that we feel that we can identify that we want to strengthen, that we want to identify with it, that are peace-loving, that identify with the goals that we as Americans have. And we start to do that, then we realize that, okay, we've identified as the Kurds, the Peshmerga, uh, you know, these are the, the, Iranian, uh, not the Iraqi moderates, 
You know, these are the people we want to see succeed. I, I dealt with those people in Iraq. I do not want to, to paint them all with the same brush of uh, Islamic uh, terrorists. They're not. Uh, but we have to identify the, the folks that we that we um, identify with and that we uh, hold similar values to, and then we support them. We support them in ways that make sense. Does it mean that we go over and fight their wars for them? No. Does it mean that we might help them in, with weapons and, and uh, uh, intelligence and air support? Possibly. But that starts to drive it. Once you've got a clear vision of... of who they are, what you're wanting to do, and a clear a clear vision of the problem, then you start to have a, a policy that emerges, and uh, and something that you can you can live with. And one of the things that Americans uh, and this this president in particular has had difficulty with is understanding the reality of a of the long term war that we're involved with. Okay, we are you. It's it's like looking at the the, the British fighting the, uh, the, the colonies. You know, they thought they could all line up and and uh, fight a war with redcoats and straight lines, and, and we, we decided that we were going to fight the war differently, okay? Uh, the, we have not yet figured out that the war we're fighting is, is an asymmetric war right. against people who are fighting, in, in essence, from behind trees. We're still trying to fight it like a, a, a government. And we have to understand uh, that this is an ideological war that may be here for eighty, hundred years. We have to be. We have to have the steadiness to say that we're going to fight this this kind of terroristic thinking until we destroy it. Not not until, um, as this president said, we're going to try a surge and then we're going to we're going to leave in two years. That was probably the most foolish military strategy we could have had. It wasted lives, wasted money, and ended up, you know, uh, giving the, the territory back to people who were patient. Right. And so uh, we look at, you know, we still have troops in Germany. We still have troops in Japan, in Korea. But somehow we thought that we could turn around and walk out of Iraq in two years, three years. And uh, we have to understand that this enemy that we are fighting, it's an ideological war. And we're going to have to fight it for a long, long time to see peace finally emerge. We have to be patient. That's, I heard that's one the truth candidate. No, I. Yeah, absolutely. And I heard one candidate last night, a Republican candidate, say that he would declare war on ISIS. But as we know, this is an asymmetric war. They are not bounded by the Geneva Conventions because not at all. They don't follow the rules. Uh, no. You know, we, the, this is, an, as you mentioned, this is asymmetrical, meaning that this is, <laughs> this is an unconventional style of warfare. It's unconventional warfare in every sense in that there is no country, there is no defined boundaries, and we're virtually everywhere all throughout the Middle East. We know where the pockets of uh, the most violent and vile of the radical Islamic terrorism, which is otherwise known as ISIS, but you know, Doctor Plaster, can we can we afford to declare war on ISIS when we? Yes, we know the enemy, but how does that parlay into a traditional sense of war? I I don't know how it does. I think there are um, ways. There are aspects of that that we we need to understand. Let me go back to something that we're currently debating which is the closing of Guantanamo Bay. Um, uh, we have a president who sees uh, that as a closed-end um, responsibility. It's like we won the war, we left, send everybody home. What he doesn't seem to understand is the long-term nature, an ongoing nature of this conflict. And it, it's not that Guantanamo Bay is there to, to uh, punish somebody. Guantanamo Bay is there in recognition of the long-term aspect of this conflict, and it takes combatants off the field. And, and the question is, well, how long should we keep them there? And the answer is, as long as we need to, to keep those folks from get re-entering the, the fight. And, and uh, if, if that's the rest of their lives, that's the rest of their lives. We have to commit to doing the right thing and not what come I in with the... What I hear from the American left 
is that we sh- we should treat enemy combatants the same way we would treat American citizens in that we give constitutional protections, due process. No, 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 no. That's not that's not how it works. They they are not afforded constitutional protections. They do not abide by any sort of constitutional code or they don't they don't apply the same rules of war as we would as in an, in a more traditional setting um they are murdering and slaughtering american citizens their own and this radical form that has permeated itself is is quite literally the most vile of what we consider the radicalized form of islam and I just have a hard time listening to folks who tell me, oh, no, well, we have to give these folks constitutional protections. Well, no, no, we don't. No, not in the least. If we do that, if we give them constitutional protection, we're literally giving them a weapon that they can use against us. Of course. And and as I said when I started this, there are people in this world who only understand force. And, right. and th- that, that, unfortunately, you know, that is the purpose of weapons: is to uh, inflict upon an enemy who understands nothing but force, superior force, that causes them to surrender. I mean, in the in its barest forms, that is wh- how we end up resorting to war. We we and I am one that would, you know, I've seen the devastation of war. I've zipped the body bags up. I, I've seen the limbs blown off of uh, of bodies, so I only want to see that as a absolute last resort. Right. We we try to we try diplomacy, we try sanctions, we try cajoling, we try uh, uh, goodwill, we try to build uh, uh, counter in, in you know uh, uh, civilian uh, things, uh, civilian activities. You know, uh, we build hospitals, schools, all that sort of thing. But there are certain people in this world who don't understand goodwill. They don't care that we've tried to do that. And they're only going to understand when we exert force. And, and, and that's, that, that, that's unfortunate. You know, right. That's more than unfortunate. It's terrible. But that's the world we live in. And part of the Constitution that is one of the most prevalent – I mean every piece of the Constitution is, is important, but – you know, in the preamble of the Constitution, that we have, we must provide for the common defense and promote the general welfare, and in that we secure the blessings of liberty. Um, and we have an enemy; we have a defined enemy, a discernible ener- uh, enemy, Doctor Plaster. And I think that the role of our military must be to uh, to quickly identify our enemy know their positioning, and kill them. I mean, and that's that's the basics that I would like to see. Um, I, I, I'm concerned, however, that some of our par- foreign policy that was often pushed and perpetuated by even the Republican Party is that uh, we've gotten this idea that this, this nation-building, um, going into other countries and implementing American values and ideals and setting up a government is somehow – going to translate into that country supporting the American way of life when their values are fundamentally different than ours. Their culture is something that is completely non-germane to what the American experience is. And I just hope that in the future that members of Congress understand that if they look in Iraq, which I think that um, based upon the intelligence that this nation had at the time, you know, the president of the United States, George W. Bush, had to make a value-based decision, and I don't buy all this stuff that you know he lied to get us in the. There's no way I don't I don't believe it, and I think it's quite frankly ridiculous. But I think that we need to understand where to prioritize in national security, and we can't go into every nation and expect them to align with the American values that that we cherish. I understand where you're coming from, and and I I agree to. Uh, to a certain limit. Uh, you, my personal experience was I was involved in those community building activities. I worked with physicians and patients uh, in Iraqi hospitals, and I worked with town councils, and I and I trained Iraqi police, uh, and, and and I came to really appreciate that they too wanted 
um, a peaceful uh, nation. They wanted to prosper. They wanted safety. Um, I think sometimes that we go uh, just, and I'm not accusing you of this, but we, 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 we run the risk of going too far, painting them as if they don't want the same things that we want. Right. We have to recognize that in large measure, many of them, not all of them, that's the problem, many of them uh, are victims of their own countrymen. And uh, you're, you're correct in the sense that we cannot fight their wars for them. And they must they must stand up uh, uh, and fight for their their own uh, welfare or suffer the consequences because we cannot fight their war for them. But I, I stand to tell you that that uh, when we worked hand in hand with uh, Iraqi civilians, even Iraqi military, to help them rebuild their country, they got it. They got it. We just simply we we left too soon uh we didn't turn uh they didn't have good leaders you know if you look back at our country you know george washington john adams these were remarkable men you know uh, george washington was offered a kingship and refused it <laughs> these are amazing men they're hard to come by uh, and i i have to say that uh the leadership that that some of these countries have had step up have not nearly been the quality of men that that history required. Right. So, uh, but I, I'm loath to say that that uh, uh, that that we can't do positive things or that we shouldn't be doing positive things. It's just that there, you're right. There is a limit, and right. there is a time in which, in which we say, if you're not going to stand up for yourself, then we can't do it for you. So I want to move over quickly to the Bill of Rights. Um, when you become a congressman, your first, the very first thing that you will do is raise your hand, put your hand onto the Bible, and pledge to uphold the, uh, the Constitution. And mm -hmm. um, it's me, I'm looking at the Constitution right now. I carry a copy of it with me. Okay, so that – I, I like that. Um, in fact, Delegate David Vogt, who's also running for Congress uh, in Maryland's 6th Congressional District, he carries a copy of the Constitution with him on his person at all times, which I think is great because uh, it's, it's, it's always helpful that no matter where you are, if you ever need to reference something in the Constitution, you'll have that. And um, I wish I was at the – I wish I was, had the ability like Senator Ted Cruz, who's uh, – my understanding is that he's memorized the entire – Constitution of the United States, which is which is a feat in and of itself. Um, yeah. But you know, I uh, I'm proud to say that I read it often and uh, have have certain parts down. But uh, one of the one of the, the the when I'm looking for someone who goes to Congress, I want them to truly understand and to protect the Constitution, to protect their Bill of Rights, not just one or two of the amendments. And of course, the most the, the amendment that Probably the most attention is the Second Amendment because we're always hearing of sort of you know these attacks on the Second Amendment, and some people don't understand that uh, "shall not be infringed" is is written as it is. Um, but I'm also concerned about the Fourth Amendment and people understanding that we have a right to privacy and that we that government cannot spy on its American citizens or cannot go out. Um, and you know, with this bulk collection of metadata on millions of Americans, um, you know, why not go get a warrant? Go get a warrant uh, if they want to do that. And this is the libertarian coming out in me. But most importantly, <laughs> <laughs> I look at the uh, the Tenth Amendment, and I think anything that's not left to the federal government is expressively left to the states. The states are, in essence, the incubators of freedom and liberty, and I'd like to see the size and scope of the of the federal government work as it's supposed to work, but also to 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 be much smaller than what it is. And so, Dr. Plaster, what are your thoughts about the Tenth Amendment about leaving the states <laughs> with most of the issues versus that of expanding the federal government? It's it's what's fascinating is that it's it's related to our economic strength. You know, one of the things that we discovered uh, at the beginning of our country was that when uh, the farmers had one crop, we were we were incredibly uh, vulnerable if that one crop failed. 
uh, one of the things we found recently is with there's just a, a, smi- a smattering of banks, and one or two two of those banks fail. We're incre- we are um, we are vulnerable. Uh, the, when the federal government thinks it knows how to do everything and sets policy that runs across the board to every citizen in, in the country on things that they really don't need to be, they endanger. They run the danger. Policy is ill thought out, uh, and um, the strength of America is in a diverse economy. It's in a diverse uh, uh, states. Uh, uh, incubating different ways to handle problems, um, uh, a, a broad-based competition economically, a broad-based economic, uh, broad-based, uh, in essence, a competition of the states, which state does things right. So um, I look at, you're absolutely correct. There's a reason that uh, states are, uh, the rights are reserved to the states, and it's not just because federal government is bad, it's that federal government many times is inefficient. One size, you know, we always talk about one size does not fit all. It really doesn't. <laughs> we uh, we need to have a lot of different variation because the folks in Alabama are not like the folks in in, uh, in Alaska or New Hampshire or or New York or California. And um, you, you want to have uh, uh, governments that are largely related to the folks in that area. And only the things that have to be standardized, that are specific, as the Constitution says, that are specifically um, uh, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by, to it by the states are reserved to the states' respect. I, you know, I think that uh, it's very, very important that we, ke- we keep that uh, um, homoge- uh, homogeneity Shall I say, yeah. of of uh, competition and uh, differences of opinion and and spread out across uh, across the states and well, I think uh, and not try to force everybody into one group think that the government thinks the way you should uh, you know that you should do something. Does that make sense? It does. And when I'm when when I when I vote on a member of Congress, um, I want I want them to understand that their first priority is to uphold that document that you just read from uh to 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 tr- to literally keep the constitution with them at all times and understand what their duty is as a United States congressperson and um you know I want a constitutionalist to to represent us and I'm very confident that when you go to congress that that will be your you know your guiding light um when you uh when you're making your decisions you know that's really important when we're looking at the the next Supreme Court justice, where there's all this debate going on right now about the next Supreme Court justice, and and uh, the problem uh, with activist judges who are um, deciding what they think is right is that that shifts in their minds, and uh, and so no one can really predict what Elaine uh, uh, Kagan uh, uh, or uh, Justice Sotomayor uh, is going to think uh, about what should be done. Uh, what we need to be, that's unpredictable. What we really want to do is we want to stay with the, the standard of what was written, what, what was intended when the Constitution was written. That's right. what we talk about when we say a strict constitutionalist or a strict, uh, uh, a strict interpretation. That means everybody knows what it means. Right. It's not subject to somebody's opinion. Yeah. Dr. Dr. Plaster, where can we find you on the web? Um the uh website is Plaster for Congress, F O R P L A S T E R F O R Congress dot com. And uh you can find us on Facebook at Mark Plaster M D. Mm-hmm. And we can also go to your website and, and- and donate mm-hmm. money as well. <laughs> absolutely, uh, absolutely. And you know, uh, we we obviously everybody talks about uh, people who donate large sums, but you know, you know, a, a, a three dollar a three dollar donation will help us put out a, a yard sign or help buy a t shirt, bumper stickers. Just get it gets the oh. word out uh, to people to say that you know we have an alternative, we have an option uh, this year of somebody who has real world experience. 
And uh, uh, but it, it does take it does take money, and and so wow. I appreciate anything anybody can can offer to help us. Absolutely, Doctor Plaster. I certainly appreciate your time coming on the show this afternoon, and uh, I, I hope we come back. I, I hope that we can uh, have another in-depth conversation and get in more into uh, a policy discussion about some of the other major issues that affect the 3rd Congressional District. But in the meantime, uh, I wish you uh, all the best moving forward, and uh, I certainly uh, I think that you will be a, a fantastic member of Congress, and uh, whatever we can do to help you um, in the primary and the general election, uh, we're, we are here. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. It was enjoyable talking to you. I, I, I'm sorry if I talked too long. Uh, no. I should have maybe a little bit, been a little bit more uh, succinct in my answers, but uh, I'll, I'll try to do that next time. Well, we appreciate your time. You have a great weekend, and please, like I said, come back again and see us soon. Thank you, Ryan. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.